Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, Muppets in Moscow. We'll be joined by Natasha Lansrogov, the television producer tasked with bringing one of the US's most warmly regarded kids' TV exports, Sesame Street, to the slightly chillier audiences found around TV sets in Russia during the early 1990s. Our host for today's discussion is Carl Miller, Research Director for the Center of Analysis of Social Media at the Think Tank Demos. Here's Carl with more. Well, folks, a very uh, warm welcome from me as well. And I'm truly, truly delighted to introduce our guest, Natasha Lance Rogoff. She is an award-winning television producer, filmmaker and journalist who's produced television news and documentaries in Russia, Ukraine and the former Soviet Union. Uh, she was the executive producer on Olitsa Sazam, the Russian adaptation of Sesame Street between 1993 and 97, and also made Plaza Sesamo in Mexico. That won't be the last name that I will not pronounce correctly today. She's an associate fellow at Harvard University, and of course, is the author of this, Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. Well, Natasha, very, very warm welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me tonight, Carl. It's great to be here. Okay, so... Set the scene for us. Um, where did the initial idea for taking Sesame Street to Russia, where did it come from? Well, the workshop, Sesame Workshop, which is the producer of Sesame Street in the United States and international co-productions around the world, uh, they had spoken with then-Senator Biden. And uh, he, at that time, was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee. So at this point, it was uh, late uh, 1992, and the Soviet Union had collapsed a year earlier. Uh, many, it was a period of absolutely historically unprecedented change. And uh, Sesame Street and Senator Biden imagined that the Muppets could be ambassadors who could model idealistic values about tolerance, freedom of expression, as well as, you know, transferring skills to young children so that they could thrive in a new open society. So Biden spearheaded congressional approval, bipartisan approval, for some financing for an original Russian Sesame Street show to be produced. And I was tasked to lead that team. Uh, and, and so how, Natasha, how, how, how did the job end up being yours? I mean, what, what were you doing at the time when all of these, you know, moves yeah. were being made to bring to bring the Muppets over to Moscow. I thought I was absolutely the last person that should be doing this show. 
I mean, I, I had been uh, in the Soviet Union for the previous 10 years directing documentaries and producing news for uh, CNN and CBS and Channel 4 as well. And, um, you know, I, I made serious films. One, the last one I did was called Russia for Sale, The Rough Road to Capitalism. And I had embedded myself with what I considered communist fascists who wanted to do everything they could to avoid the Soviet Union imploding. Uh, they were anti-Western, anti-Semitic. They were really, really frightening people. But the Sesame Street executives came to a screening I had in New York City and then approached me and said, you know, we're having some trouble, you know, finding a broadcaster and a partner in Russia. This is, you know, after the Soviet Union had collapsed. And I just looked at them and said, did you just watch my film that was just screened? I mean, it was as far as you could imagine from the Muppets, you know, from their lighthearted, absolutely delightful comedy. But they said, you know, we are we, we, we see that you, uh, you know, have worked in, in Russian television as well. And we'd like you to consider it. And and I was intrigued. I mean, I thought everybody knew the Muppets and I, I loved them, even though I did not grow up with them because the show aired in 1969 and I was born earlier. But I, I was game. Uh, of course, I totally underestimated the challenges that we would face. So you take the job and you arrive, I know, in, in, in Moscow during one of the early visits to start to line up all the different backers and supporters that you would need. Can you kind of paint the picture for us a little bit of what Russia was like then in those kind of very early Soviet years? I know you were meeting Boris Berezovsky and all of these kind of figures that we would now kind of associate with organized crime. Mm. Well, it was in the early days of the transition, but at the same time, this was a period when uh, the West was euphoric about the idea of Russia and the new independent states joining the free world. Uh, it was heady stuff. I mean, at the same time, there were bankers, investors, uh, religious figures all flooding into what was the former Soviet Union with the idea of uh, making a lot of money, you know, uh, converting people. And it was also an incredible period of instability. So for many Soviet citizens, this was a time of, of extreme difficulty, economic difficulty, as well as uh, emotional difficulty. They were a superpower. The world had just watched their country fall apart. So it was into this uh, landscape that, you know, I was thrust with my team from Sesame Workshop uh, in New York City. And I had a partner um, that I had selected, a very good friend of mine, Leonid Zagalski. One of our first meetings was with uh, Boris Berezovsky, who had become uh, a rising star and media mogul. He was not at the level he later became. And at this point, uh, there was really no easy internet access. So the information that we had about who people were had to rely on other people in the TV industry in, in Moscow who spoke with us about who these people were. And we had this meeting with Berezovsky. It took us months to get it. And finally, we, we meet in a, in a Japanese restaurant. It was one of the first restaurants in, in Moscow. And we, you know, I was just thrilled telling him about Sesame Street and focusing on the philanthropic angle and how it could help millions of children, as well as that it was an original production. So we would be not uh, creating just an import, but creating a, an original program 
with three new Slavic-style Muppets uh, with their own unique design that would reflect Russian and uh, post-Soviet culture and values, as well as a brand new set, you know, a huge neighborhood. So he was very intrigued. And um, then he asked if Big Bird was going to be in the show. <laughs> and I thought that was, I loved hearing this, you know, rising oligarch <laughs> talk at Big Bird. I was like, yeah, he's, I think maybe he's getting a little excited. And then, uh, but he was, he was kind of a scary guy. He had two enormous bodyguards with him. And I was like, you know, I don't think they're going to be satisfied eating a little bit of raw fish. <laughs> and, and then anyway, by the end of the meeting, uh, after he thought about the numbers and what was involved, he agreed to become the, the show's sponsor. So we were thrilled, Leonid and I. And uh, uh, we all agreed that over the next couple of weeks, Leonid would follow up with Berezovsky's uh, lawyers and get the paperwork that we needed. And then, and I went back to the States. Three weeks later, I got a phone call from uh, Leonid, who was uh, you know, very upset on the phone. And he explained that Berezovsky's car had been blown up and um, he w had severe burns on his body and uh, he survived, we found out later. But he wasn't interested in continuing the discussion about the children's puppet show after that. So we had to start from scratch again. And Berezovsky wasn't the only business person that encountered kind of harm or in, in, indeed, I, I know that other, others were killed that you came to news. Was, that yeah. was, how was Sesame Workshop taking this kind of news when you would go back to New York and tell them that your you know, associates and interlocutors were, were actually ten, turning up, blown up or even dead? Well, they, there was a, you know, as in any company, I think, and Sesame Workshop at that time, Children's Television Workshop, is a nonprofit. And there was a certain faction within the organization that, you know, really thought we shouldn't be in Russia. They made it very clear that it was too dangerous. It was risky for the brand of the Muppets, you know, but there was another faction of People, uh, my boss included, uh, Baxter Urist and Gary Nell, who felt that, you know, this was an incredible opportunity and we should do everything that we could to try to make it happen. But I have to say when I, you know, some of the ideas uh, that I brought back as far as potential uh, funders were not met with uh, great excitement. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> and uh, it was a process for me of learning. I mean, I was an independent filmmaker. I hadn't worked in a corporation before. And a lot of this navigating inside a company was new to me, as well as trying to explain to my superiors that in post-communist Russia, there was no rule of law. There were no Western banks at the time that we were doing this. I mean, it was a different country. There was not even a, a constitution yet. So this was a period when we were trying to implement a program and follow the rules of a developed Western society when one did not exist in Russia. And also in terms of the people that we could go to to find the kind of financing we needed for this show. And we had to find a partner that would match the same amount of funding as the U.S. government was going to put in. Otherwise, we weren't going to have any money from the U.S. government. So it was really challenging to find somebody who we could trust. And eventually we did in Irina Borisova, 
who was an, one of the few women owners of an advertising and television production company. And her heart was in it. I mean, I, I met her. I wasn't sure if she had the money, but I trusted her. And, you know, in the book, I, I she's, she's just an amazing person and uh, was like a needle in the haystack. We were very lucky to find her. Natasha, tell us a bit about um, Russian television. So, so what did it look like in the kind of immediate kind of breakup of the Soviet Union? Was it clear to you which channel you kind of needed to convince and work with as well to get Sesame Street out? There were really only two channels at that time. There was RTR and ORT. And these two large Moscow-based TV channels broadcast their signal across 11 time zones. So one-seventh of the world surface. And you you had to work, if you wanted your show to air, you had to air it on one of these two channels. But there was also just the beginning of cable and a little tiny news station was budding uh, named, uh, it was called NTV, run by uh, Igor Malashenko, who's now passed, who was a great man. And we initially went to the children's department at ORT with my colleagues from uh, Sesame Workshop and Leonid but that was not going to happen. <laughs> there was uh, the, the whole situation with television at that time was very unstable because until that time, production had been supported by the state. You had a complete state-run television, as you do now in Russia. And so and, and Putin has eliminated, you know, independent television for the most part entirely now. So at that time, we had to, uh, work with the state, but they had no money. And so most of the uh, film studios, like uh, Gorky Film Studios, Moss Film, they were dark. They weren't producing films because there was no state sponsorship for film production. And that was also true for television. There was very limited production. And there was one other children's television show, Spokoni Nochi Malashi, which was a rather old program that was uh, very propagandistic and didactic. And basically children watched the show before they went to bed. So we pulled all those people in. Our team numbered about 400. And this is set designers, writers, producers, animators. A lot of the animators were Georgian. Our team was multicultural. We had Russians, Ukrainians, Armenians. I mean, it was quite amazing. And we really had incredible artists, talented, passionate people who envisioned a different future for Russia. They hoped that Ulitsa Sazam would model a kinder, more tolerant, peaceful society and a peaceful neighborhood where neighbors helped each other. That's what they were trying to create, first on the little screen, and then they hoped in reality in the future. So let's let's talk, Natasha, about some of those kind of artistic and creative and editorial decisions and tensions and pathways that you had to weave throughout those incredible years you were spending there. So firstly, tell us a bit about the kind of traditions and legacies that you were kind of stepping into when talking to Russians and Russian artists about children's TV and puppets. I know that there was an early suggestion to include, was it Baba Yaga? As a, as a character on, on Sesame Street? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we had, uh, we did not, the Russian uh, team, the creative team did not like the Muppets at first. And when we showed them some clips from the American show, uh, they just said, oh, no, those puppets, they don't look Russian. And 
uh, our children will not like those puppets. They would prefer our puppets where, and their traditional puppets were really magnificent. Uh, they were, you know, wooden. And the chief director said, Natasha, our puppetry tradition dates back to the 16th century. And um, we, we really don't need your American Muppets. So it took months to, to uh, win them over, I would say, in order to accept these different looking, you know, softer puppets with often foam or felt and then, you know, these googly eyes. Uh, that was just a very different look. And, you know, I understood where um, some of my teammates were coming from. The, you know, one person mentioned, you know, there's our children are going through such a huge transition. There's so much change in our country, at least for our children's show. We should have something that's familiar, have something that's their own, that they recognize. But, you know, eventually this group changed their mind. They came to the United States uh, and... Um, you know, were allowed to be in New York City under, they had visas and were trained at Sesame Street Workshop by veteran um, puppeteers and producers just for a week. And they came to this decision uh, themselves ultimately and created puppets, but not the same kind of puppets that exist uh, for the U.S. production. They created their own very unique puppets that were based on their own folklore. And what were what were these these Slavic puppets? These were kind of like negotiations, were they? Part that you know, a Jim Henson style in in the way that they were built and the way that yes. they looked, but but trying to animate and express, you know, particularly and specifically Russian values and history and aesthetics. Well, the the uh, full body puppet, which is uh, in the Russian version, is called Zeliboba. And he's based on a character from Russian folklore called Domovoy, who's a spirit of the hearth and the home and protects the home. And initially the team, the, the Russian team had drawn the character uh, as an old man. And he looked kind of, he wore like a cap, like a pope or a rabbi. And he looked kind of like a re religious figure. Uh, and he was omniscient. You know, he was all knowing and would tell children how to behave. And in the conversations over time, we were like, well, what if he were more childlike? What if he made mistakes? What if he ex was more experimental? Wouldn't that give the writers uh, an opportunity to have more fun with this character, to create a lighter character rather than such a didactic character? And eventually they moved in that direction. And we can show a picture of what Zilli Boba looks like. He's a large uh, blue a uh, Muppet uh, who is taller than Big Bird. He's wearing uh, huge white sneakers, uh, which were based on the fact that the coordinating producer said that kids were now wearing sneakers, you know, that once the market had opened up and they had sneakers, so we wanted to make him like other young kids. And it, you, it's hard to see from this, but I think we have a closer shot. Into his coat are sewn pieces of leaves and moss and twigs. And that's because he is, like the, the folklore character, he is of nature and he's a tree spirit. So, they, you know, you can't get more Russian than that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Natasha, um, I, don't, so I don't know for people watching this, but for me, probably the most abiding memory of the Muppets are the songs. I remember singing along to them and, and, and probably more than anything else, they kind of abide with you and, and pop up into your head. Yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, the Russian tradition in classical music is probably as deep reaching and as profoundly held as, as, as puppetry. So how did you navigate that discussion between the kind of songs that you thought the show should have and and the kind of songs that your Russian colleagues perhaps thought the show should have? Well, initially, the music director, who is an extremely accomplished pianist and composer herself, wanted only classical music. And, you know, Sesame Street is known for its innovative music. It's very diverse music. Some of the top musicians in the world had their start at Sesame Street and, you know, were able to make a living until they kind of made it later. And we hoped that the same would be true of Ulitsa Sazam, you know, which means Sesame Street in, in Russian. But the composer was like, no, 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 no. And, and this made sense in terms of their experience because a lot of animated, children's animated programs had classical music. So that made sense from where she was coming from. But the other thing is that, you know, in my earlier life, I had written a lot about underground rock and roll and had made a film with a friend that was uh, called Rock Around the Kremlin. And it was all about how these musicians had been persecuted under communism and couldn't record their music or uh, sell their music or make a living. And I had hoped in taking this job that I'd be able to bring a lot of these people who had become friends of mine, too, into the fold so that they could be part of creating what would become a new sound for modern Russia, you know, contemporary sounds. And this was something that I thought could be incredibly exciting, you know, and also benefit the show tremendously. But the the chief director was like, nope, nope, I don't want that. And eventually I talked to a friend of mine uh, who is now a very famous uh, rock star in Moscow then and now. And I asked him, what could I do? You know, could you help me? And he he basically chided me and said, you know, Natasha, you're asking for people to change. And this is a really difficult time. You know, you're expecting too much change too fast. But he also thought that he could contribute and, and many of the people that he knew could. So he offered to meet with the chief director and she was very nervous about meeting with him. You know, he, he had, you know, like he wore leather pants and he had an earring and, you know, she came from the Moscow Conservatory of Music and these are worlds that don't usually meet. 
but eventually she agreed to meet with him and uh, they hit it off. You know, they had children of the same age and she learned that my friend had studied classical music before he became a rock star. And he assured her that he could compose uh, music for a children's show that would, you know, knock her socks off. And this, you know, eventually she was, she tried it and became so open to inviting other young people and, you know, non-classical musicians to produce for the show. And the music of Ulitsa Sazam is some of the best of any international co-production I've ever seen. Now, Natasha, from, um, from all of this, let's talk about values, because I, I think you, you, you've touched on this already. And I, I think it's, it just seems so important that in many ways, all of these navigations and negotiations you were having was, was really almost around like a microcosm of the discussion of what kind of society Russia, Russia wanted to be and what kind of values it wanted to promote to the generation of people that would build that, that new society. So what, what were the biggest clashes there? And what kind of process could you put into place to try and, mm-hmm. um, to try and build consensus around a set of core values for the show? Well, I think part of why the book is resonating with people today and, you know, it's just been amazing seeing how it's been embraced both in the U.S. and the U.K., is because it deals with values. It looks at a culture, you know, through the prism of the Muppets and making Sesame Street. It looks at how our cultures are different. And it brings in uh, aspects of history and national pride, as well as showing how change happens. And one example of that is, for instance, we were showing clips, we were talking about inclusivity. So this was one value and Every international co-production begins with a curriculum seminar where you bring together the creative team and children's education experts and teachers into a room. And we held this uh, curriculum seminar at the Danilov Monastery, which was the, it is the headquarters of the Russian Orthodox Church. So we had rented space there. And as we were discussing this topic of inclusivity, which was chosen by the research director, who is Russian. I showed a clip of a little boy in a wheelchair who was uh, flying a kite, and he. there's a little song in the background, you know, me and my chair, I go everywhere. It's a very cute segment. And the video ends, and I'm sitting there smiling, and the team in the room is horrified. And then one woman, one guy says, uh, it's so exploitative to show children in wheelchairs on television. And I'm not really sure what to say. That is not what I expected wow. this video yeah. would elicit. And then another woman says, I don't, you know, very innocently, I don't understand. Why would Narmanyi normal children, ever want to watch a TV show with ni Narmanyi not not normal children? So the use of this language was also, you know, archaic to hear and, and difficult because you know, the, I just thought, okay, these are some of the most enlightened uh, educators. And I'm not sure if, if this country is ready for Sesame Street, you know, based on the, the values of the program. But then this other woman raises her hand and she says, you know, you Americans don't understand. Our country has just collapsed. Our healthcare system is in shambles. And there are many children who are trapped in their beds 
and they will never have a wheelchair. So how will they feel if they see children with wheelchairs on our TV show? So when she says this, I look around the room and many people are crying. This was such an incredibly moving moment, you know, for me as well in the room. And, and I can imagine for them, it was also painful and humiliating to have this discussion with a group of visiting Americans. So, you know, we, we, we took a break and later when we reassembled, uh, there was a woman uh, who was from Chuvashia area and she explained that she worked with disabled children every day because in her area, uh, they had the highest incidence of children with deformities because it was a dumping ground for hazardous chemicals under communism. And she said, I know these children. I work with them every day. They yearn to play with normani children, not normal children. And she says to the group, we must have scenarios in our show that sees these children as valuable, a valuable part of society. And through this process of discussion, the team moved in that direction. And I didn't have to say a word. It was people talking with each other and realizing the important role that they had to play in the transition of their own country. It, it sounds, Natasha, like, like you, you built really a community in, in Moscow around the production of this, you know, and I mean a community a really in, in the sense yes. that, it, that, that it was shared values and, a, and an increasingly shared vision. Did those values then kind of an, an increasing consensus kind of coalesce over the very process of making Sesame Street and the very process of having these discussions and making explicit decisions over, over what the show should and shouldn't do and should and shouldn't show? Very much so. I mean, uh, our team got extremely close. And I remember one day when the chief director of Volodya Gramatikov came to me and he said, you know, I remember when I went to Sesame Street in the United States and there was this feeling on the set of a family and people knew each other so well that they really didn't even need to explain things so that the shooting was so smooth because they understood what they needed to do to produce the show well. And he said, I'm so proud that we now, you know, this was after some weeks of, of filming, have reached that same level, that we have rebuilt that community in our own country. And people feel like they're part of something, and uh, you know, that is going to change their country for the better. So take us at the end of all of this struggle and striving and, and risk and, 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 and bravery that you and your colleagues showed. Take us to the night that it airs. What was it like to finally see Sesame Street go out in Moscow and, and, across, and across the former Soviet I, Union? Yeah, it was very emotional. I, I, I write about in my book that I was actually pregnant during the last part of filming and everything. So I had just given birth um, a couple weeks earlier and uh, left the baby with my husband. And uh, when I got to Moscow, we had a premiere with about 600 people in um, a theater. 
and all of the foreign press was there and the uh, Soviet press present. And we presented with our, our broadcaster. So by then we had a broadcaster, which we did not have until after the show was shot, believe it or not. And our uh, Irina Borisova, my, my partner, was there, and my colleagues from Sesame Street, uh, Baxter Uris was there, and Leonid. I mean, it was an incredible night, and the children were so excited. They were all sitting in front of the theater um, on the floor, you know, in front of the stage, because there were so many people there, there weren't enough seats. And Zelibova comes out, so first time children have seen this Muppet character, and they all start screaming, you know, they're just like, ah! So it was just really fun. And then afterwards, uh, we went, I went outside with, uh, with Leonie to get some air and we had this, um, press conference show, you know, before the show was going to premiere. So it, it, it turned six o'clock and we looked, uh, we were outside and it was snowing and we looked up at the, uh, apartment buildings that were surrounding the theater and notice that the color in the windows, the colors were changing in unison. So it was like all red and then all blue. And we looked at each other and realized, oh my God, that's our show just, just aired. And there was a lot of press about the show coming out because as I mentioned, it was a big deal because also there wasn't much uh, available for children. So as we watched this, you know, thinking about all the people in their living rooms, you know, watching the TV show. I mean, it was an incredible feeling of accomplishment. And I was so proud of our team and what we had achieved in the end against incredible odds. That is just such an arresting, I was going to, I was going to read that quotation from you, Natasha, if you hadn't mentioned it. Such an arresting moment and image, the idea of seeing your show flickering on in sitting room after sitting room across the entire city. It, it must have been a moment like no other. It was incredible. Yeah. I did want to say, Carl, that it's important for people to know that the show went on to become a huge hit and it aired across all of the former Soviet Union into Russia, Ukraine, Armenia, Georgia, all across the 11 time zones. And it lasted for 10 years. So well into Putin's era and people that that you might meet today who are in their late 20s and 30s, many of the same people that are walking out of Russia now because they don't support the war and they don't want to fight, grew up on Ulitsa Sazam. And that's also true for Ukrainian soldiers, men and women who are fighting today for their ind continued independence. So do you think it... Um it did promote the values, Natasha, that you wanted it to, looking back. Do you, do you think, I mean, obviously... I'm absolutely, yeah, I'm 100% sure. And I think that, you know, in the West now, when we, you know, we have to understand what is at stake for people when they protest. And I'm talking about many of the people, my colleagues that I worked with, who were trying years ago to deal with and, and challenge Putin's... Uh, increased repression of a free media and people's um, self-determination, they had to leave overnight. Many of these people uh, had been active on social media. And when Putin passed the law against speaking out against the special operation, uh, they had to leave. They were at danger of being put in prison for 15 years. And those people who remain and have children and have to 
care for their children, they are very aware that they cannot go out and protest. Who's going to take care of their children? Well, this brings us nicely, actually, Natasha, onto onto one of the one of the questions we have here um, from from Gregory. Thank you, Gregory, um, who who says was bringing the Muppets to Russia a political project or was it commercial in nature? Uh, well, Sesame Street is a nonprofit. Sesame Workshop is, and so um, the uh, there was advertising on both ends of the show. So revenue went back to the uh, TV station, the partner, to Sesame Street, um, and I think the, and there were two two stations involved. So I would say it was a, a public, private, nonprofit, commercial project. And sorry, this is going to be another one for me, not the audience, but I just actually wanted to just dwell on that. That, that final thought you had, Natasha, around the, the idea that, that many of, I, I imagine your colleagues and people associated with the show have either, either had to leave or, um, or, or, or stay silent um, in Russia now. What do you think we currently get wrong? Do, do you think we get anything wrong about Russia right now? Do you think there's a kind of a, a, more, a more serious and deeper, if, if latent and quieter series of democratic values and commitments to, to humanism than... Than, than perhaps we might be seeing from Russia right now. When we look at the propaganda shows and when we hear about Putin's speeches and we hear about the repression. Well, the peer, the reason why it's so important to look at this period of the, you know, in the 1990s is that Putin continuously uses this time period as a justification for his increased authoritarianism. So he brings up what the West did to Russia at that time and how, you know, uh, the West is belittling Russia. And he capitalizes a lot on uh, manipulating sentiments that you see uh, in the course of creating Sesame Street, like Russian pride. But as far as what we got wrong, I think, you know, early on during that time period, there was uh, so much effort at stabilizing the ruble and using shock therapy you know, to build capitalism quickly, that many uh, leaders and economists didn't take into account the human process of how long it takes people to change, change their views, to be able to uh, assimilate new ways of living and in the world. And we expected, as we do now in many countries, um, for other nations to mirror our own. And it, these are very different countries with different values. So that expectation is going to backfire. It backfired then, and it'll backfire now in many countries. Mm. Would you take the Muppets back to Moscow if you ever got the chance in some imagined post-Putin world? Yeah. I think, I think we have to be ready when we get the chance again, which I think we will, because all wars end. And this war will thankfully end too. And when we do get that chance, it would be absolutely fantastic to bring Sesame Street there again. And I know there's a team that wants to do it because I talk to them on WhatsApp now. Well, that's incredibly exciting. And all wars, all wars end and so, alas, do interviews, I'm afraid. But Natasha, thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. I, I cannot tell you both how interesting I found talking to you, but also the book. And everyone, I, I cannot commend this enough. It is a truly brilliant book. 
Um, it's an absolutely unbelievable, wild, amazing story, Natasha, that, that you've brought us. So thank you very much. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse our back catalogue, then head to intelligencesquared.com. This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Thanks for listening.